So this week's Parsha, or this week's Sedra, if you want to be more precise, that's for Ruby, since Ruby's not here. He always tells me to say Sedra, not Parsha. What's the difference? A Sedra refers to the Torah portion of the whole week, like we have now, like Parsha Shalach, Parsha Bhalotra, Parsha Bamidbar. Those are Sedras. Parshas, and you'll actually see this when you, if you read commentaries or if you read people who are discussing the Chumash from hundreds of years ago, a Parsha is like a, cat, it's like a theme. Like, for example, right now, we're going to talk about the spies. The spies is the Parsha of the spies. But in the Parsha itself, then it's going to talk about the mitzvah of tzitzis, of tzitzit, right? So that's another Parsha. So Parsha is like topics, and the Sedra is the, the books. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's the more technical term. But today, everyone calls the Sedra a Parsha. So that's just, like, people in general are not so technical. So that's the, the general rule. But of course, if Ruby's listening to this, which I'm sure he will, he will be happy to hear that we called it a Sedra. Okay, so this story that we're going to talk about today, I'm sure you may have heard about it before, but I really want to try to get us into the zone of understanding the story. And what I mean by that is, is that a lot of times when you read Tanakh, or when you read Chumash, or whatever it is, you read it like it's a lesson. But then if you want to read an entertaining novel, but you read about a book about fantastical creatures, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, or any great book that you love, right? Then you read it like it's entertaining, like it's exciting, you enjoy the story. So I think this story of the spies is one of those stories that you can also enjoy just because of the drama of it and because of the fantastic nature of the events. And without exaggeration, I will preface, this is probably one of the most dramatic one of the most tragic, one of the most catastrophic stories that we have in the entire Jewish history. So just to start off with why. The Jewish people leave Egypt and they've been in the desert for about a year and they come to the border of Israel, okay? And they know this is the pinnacle of all their accomplishments. Just to give you perspective, I just Google Maps it before I got here because I always wondered, the Jewish people ended up wandering in the desert we know for 40 years because of this story. How long does it take Google Maps today to get from exactly where we're sitting right now to walk to Cairo? How long do you think? It's six days and 15 hours. So if you stop, that's going straight. Really? If you stop, wow. let's say for a day, it will take you two weeks. If you stopped for a one day walking, one day stopping, it will take you two weeks. That journey took the Jewish people 40 years. Okay? We so that just gives you perspective. They had a lot of kids. What? <laughs> they had kids on their backs. Yeah. Okay. So it gives you perspective of what we're trying to like discover over here of how this happened, how did they come to 40 years? So the Jewish people come one year in the desert and they come to the border of Israel. They know Israel is the grand prize. You know, as we know today, the movement of Zionism and everything, but they knew back then that was the pinnacle of everything. They were in the desert, they were coming out of Egypt, but having their own land, that was the key to becoming a nation. That was the key to having all the mitzvot complete. There's many mitzvot in the Torah you can only do in Israel. So this was the, the pinnacle of everything. Before they go in, they say to Hashem, they say to God, we're nervous. We know there's nations that live there and we're going to have to conquer them. We're going to have to wage war with them. We want to scout out the land. So if you read it in the Chumash, you'll actually read it. It says, Shlach Lecha, right? The Parsha opens up and God says, send for you. So if you read it in the literal, just pure translation of the verse, it sounds like God is telling them to send. When you read Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, who's the main and most famous uh, commentator on the Chumash that we have, he says, no. What actually happened was, is God did not want them to send spies. God said, we're just going to go in. I'm telling you, we're going to conquer it. And the Jewish people said, we want to send spies. So because God wants us to be a part of everything that we do, he wants us to have our own enthusiasm. And he knows if he just tells us what to do and he tells us the result, it's going to kill the excitement. He said, fine. 
you could send for you spies to scout out the land. So Moshe picks for this great midget. So that's the thing, is that it's mistrust because the military strategy is from God. So we should have said, if we're coming with God's power, with God's strength, what do we need to have any strategy for? Meaning we saw, we just now saw, just speaking this logically, we just now saw how God took down the greatest empire of the time. If we speak about it in today's terms, which I think gives us a better perspective, imagine we as the Jewish people got into a war with America, China, or Russia, and we as the Jewish nation, God forbid, God forbid, but I'm just trying to put this in perspective. Imagine Israel gets into a war with China, Russia, or America, and we win, right? And we're like, wow, that's miraculous. We're the God's people. We just beat the greatest superpower. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what, uh, Japan or a, a much smaller country gets into a fight with us. Wouldn't it make sense we would have complete confidence that we're going to win if we just beat the greatest superpower and we know it was beyond any rationale? So we hear the Jews come out of destroying the greatest empire of the time, which was Egypt, right? We have in history, it's proven by historians, Egypt was a tremendously powerful empire. We take them down and then we come to the land of Canaan and we say, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How are we going to, how are we going to fight them? So the Jewish people say we want to send in spies to scout out the land. Of course, this was a tremendous mission. So they pick the 12 leaders of the tribes. And this part is essential to understand for this class, but really to the whole story. You know, Larry Posen actually put it in very good terms. Any of these 12 spies you're talking about today would be the biggest tzaddik of the time. They wouldn't just be a big rabbi or whatever. These spies were the most righteous men of that time. Definitely, because there's a concept in the Torah, which is called Yeridat Adorot, that as the generations go on, we get lower and lower and lower. So if you're talking about at the time of the desert, these 12 spies would be the greatest tzaddikim of our time. These are the 12 spies that were sent. We have to really internalize the caliber of these men. So he sends the 12 spies and he prays for Yeshua not to fall in. That's a side note of why he only prayed for Yeshua, not for the other spies. And the spies go in and they spend 40 days scouting the land. It says over here that if you actually time, because Rashi breaks down how long it takes to scout out the land. They went the entire length and width of the whole Israel. They went around the entire thing. So Rashi said it takes much longer than 40 days. And it says that Hashem made a miracle that because he saw they were already beginning to conspire. As the mission began and they were going around Israel, the spies were beginning to conspire of what they were going to do and what, what their plan was at the end. And so God said, I'm going to punish them for every day that they spent scouting the land. They're going to get one year. So it took them 40 days to scout out Israel. They got 40 years. Really, it should have taken, I don't know the exact number, let's say 80 days. But God said, I'm going to take away their punishment. I'll make a miracle. It will take them shorter to go through the land. So they spent 40 days scouting out the land. They go through the whole thing. Kaleb also was the other spy. Out of the 12, Yoshua and Kaleb were the only two who realized what was going to happen. And they sort of separated themselves. Kaleb went to Davin and Hebron by the, the cave of our forefathers where they're buried, the cave of the patriarchs. He went to pray there to save him from their plot. And they brought back with them, in order to be able to tell their whole story, they brought back with them these giant fruit. It said one cluster of grapes. You've ever seen the famous painting? One cluster of grapes had eight men carrying the grapes, one man carrying a fig, and one man carrying a pomegranate. These were ginormous, absolutely. And then so they came back, they told the Jewish people, and this is what happens, the report. They come back, they tell the Jewish people, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's an amazing land. It's beautiful. But guess what? Someone else has it right now. Giants live there. And it actually says, there's an explanation, that Israel was not affected by the flood. So that means 
that the people that were living there were pre-flood people. So these people were actually giants. They weren't making up stories. But how, I thought everybody, everything was destroyed with the flood. Yes. The whole world was covered with water. So that's how according to it, one explanation. Yeah. How can it be possible that people survived when animals didn't survive? Saying nothing survived. So there's one explanation. I will, yeah, to be clear over here, it is a drush, which means in the Torah, there's different levels. There's the simple explanation, the deeper explanation. On one of the deepest levels of explanations, there's one opinion that says that these people were called the Nephilim and that the flood didn't affect Israel. So the general explanation is yes. I mean, the general simple pshat, according to the Torah, is that by the flood, every single living being was wiped out on the earth. But there is an explanation that says that Israel was not affected because God said Israel is a holy land, so Israel is not going to be affected by the flood. And therefore, the people living there were giant human beings because the people pre-flood were huge. So these people were still giants, therefore their fruits were gigantic. The grapes were, to them, the size of normal grapes to us. And these people were pre-flood. And therefore, when the spies saw them, they were petrified. They said, these people, they're huge, we can't handle them. Now, this is important. This is a side note, and this is a whole long class for itself, and I don't want to get too far into this. But it's important for this class to get this idea, is that why did the spies decide to, um, to make up this plot and to say that we can't conquer Israel? Meaning, like we just said, it doesn't even make sense, rationally speaking. It's not even like a belief. Rationally speaking, if you beat up empire like Egypt, how do you not believe you could take Canaan? So an explanation is provided by the Rebbe, which is quoted by Rabbi Sachs in almost every single covenant and conversation he has this week. If you know his weekly um, Parsha class called Covenant and Conversation, in almost every single one he quotes the Rebbe's answer on this because it's one of the most fantastic answers to this question, is that the spies were not afraid to fail. They were not afraid to lose to the giants. They were afraid that they would succeed and that when they would go into Israel, they would have to switch their whole lifestyle. In the desert, their lifestyle was spiritual Everything was provided to them by God. They had a connection to God, which was unbelievable. There was no physicality. In Israel, they would have to go in. They would have to plow the fields. They would have to harvest. They would have to start. Real life would have to get started. And they basically said, we don't want this. We want to stay spiritual people. We don't want to go into the physicality. Okay? When this happens, you have to realize the response. Moshe and Aaron, when the spies come back and they give their report and they say, we cannot conquer Israel, immediately Moshe and Aaron fall flat on their faces. Complete disaster. Yeshua and Kalev tear their clothing in mourning. And Kalev and Yeshua stand up. They defend the land. And they defend what the spies are saying. As the spies are saying all these nasty things about Israel. They defend it. And then the people decide to ignore Kalev and Yeshua. And they start marching towards Moshe to basically kill him. And to have a new leader. Because they say this leader led us into the desert. Into a place where we're going to be killed by giants. We're going to appoint a new leader. As they're coming close to attack and to have a mutiny and to overthrow Moshe's leadership, God's glory comes down and appears on the tabernacle. So you have to imagine this moment. All the Jewish people are coming forward and they're going to say, okay, we're going to rebel. We're going to start a whole rebellion. All of a sudden, God comes down. And there's this moment of awe where everybody stops and realizes, okay, you know, daddy's home. <laughs> if you want to put it in other words. And God says to them, God starts speaking to Moshe and he says, again, we're going to wipe out this, this nation. This nation is not... They can't be trusted to be the chosen people. They cannot be trusted to be go into my land. It's not going to work. And Moshe, unlike the previous Parsha, when they asked for the meat, Moshe stands up and he says, God, 
have mercy on them, he argues for them, he defends them, and he even invokes the 13 attributes of mercy, which it says, the they were the secret when God wanted to kill the Jewish people, that was the key to save them. Moshe invokes this, and God says, okay, fine. And what's the punishment going to be? Is God says, I'm not going to wipe out this people, but this generation cannot go into Israel. So the punishment was very clear. They're going to wander in the desert for every day that they spied out the land, 40 years. And this generation is going to completely pass away, not by a plague, not immediately. They're going to pass away. And when the next generation is old enough, then we're going to go into Israel. And that included, as we find out later, that included Moshe Rabbeinu himself. That Moshe Rabbeinu was not the one who got to go into Israel. Instead, it was Yeshua and Kalev. And because Yeshua and Kalev were not part of the conspiracy, they were allowed to go into Israel. It says that the 10 spies, also to end off, the 10 spies had a plague where they died from a plague coming from their tongue because they spoke bad about the Holy Land. So it says that they had a plague in their tongue and they died. Okay? When the people hear this, and this is just to end off the story and then we're going to go into the deeper aspect. When the people hear this, the people become so distressed and they say, we're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. We're going to die here. We're not going to make it into Israel. So they say, no, 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 give us another chance or whatever. And they start thinking to themselves, we'll pull a Nachshon Ben Aminadav when we got stuck by the sea. We'll just go into the land and we'll show God that we do believe. And we're going to show him that we really, we do believe in him. And we're going to fix our mistake. And Moshe tells them, no. As God said, you can't. He said, they're not going in this time. And he said, we're going to wander 40 years. They go. They go up on the mountain. They try going into Israel. And the portion of the Jewish people that did this were immediately killed by Moloch and Canaan. Died immediately. Oh, they were a portion that there was a portion of the Jewish people that said, we're going to try to go in. And they were killed. Immediately, because there was no God wasn't with them. They were, in a physical, natural aspect, they were weaker than the people living in Canaan. Like I said, the people of Canaan were giants. These people were not. We were regular-sized people. So when they went in, they were immediately destroyed. So the question is over here. It had to be from a position of unity. And meaning, more importantly, not just unity, more importantly here, it had to be from God. Meaning the biggest lesson that we could take out from this story and that's what we're going to go into right now, is how did the spies make this mistake? If they're the caliber that we're talking about, if they're the 10 greatest tzaddikim that in this generation they'd be the greatest, how could they possibly get a clear mission, scout out the land, and come back and tell us what you see? Don't tell us if we can conquer the land. That was their mistake. It wasn't that they came back and said that they're giants and it's dangerous and it's going to be hard. It's that they came back and said, we cannot conquer the land. AKA, God cannot conquer the land. God is not strong enough to beat these people. So how is it possible for 10 Sadiqim of that level, we're talking about men beyond, how is it possible for them to make that mistake? And that's where we'll get into the topic. Yeah, what were you saying? So, <clears throat> there were a couple of errors. Yeah. One was, once they got into the land, they said we can't conquer it. But go back to what you said before, and that is that they decided that we need to spy it out to start with. That had to be the product of the previous 10 months or year of living in the desert and going through what they went through after having seen the miracles, after having conquered Mitzrayim, after getting the, you know, the Torah and everything, what happened during that time to change the outlook of the people such, and, and they're getting miraculous manna every day? So something had to happen so that they said, no, 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 we can't do it until first we spy. Well, if you want to hear something even more astounding, yeah. something even more astounding is actually, that's what you would think logically. But if anything, this teaches us the problem and the, the difficulty that we need to accept of human nature is that 
Nothing happened in the desert for them to question God. And yet not only here, throughout the Chumash, we see they continuously, repeatedly question God. Even in the previous Torah portion, meaning talking about nothing to do, the previous Torah portion, we have a whole story of them asking for meat. They don't come to Moshe and say, oh, listen, you know, let's say like you had Moshe as like a father figure. Listen, daddy, we would love some meat. You know, we've been wandering in the desert. We keep getting the same manna every day. We'd love some meat, you know, a little, be a little bit more tasty. It would be a little bit of a change up of flavor. And we know you can do it because you've been treating us so well this whole time. You saved us from Egypt. You're so amazing. They come to Moshe and they say, how are we supposed to live? This is the most terrible thing in the whole world. We should go. They even say we should go back to Egypt so we could get the flavors of garlic. Like, meaning if you think about it, the Jewish people also were not saying that they were a crazy nation. If anything, the Chumash is telling you flaws in human nature. That sometimes people are just greedy for no reason. And people don't trust God even when it doesn't make any sense. So it's like, if anything, we learn from these stories that we have in the Chumash. Like I always think the most, one of the most popular ones that for me was a very big um, revelation this year was when we're reading the story of the brothers, right? The story of the brothers teaches you that sibling rivalry is something which is built into human nature. And we're very confused by it. How could it be that siblings that are supposed to love each other so much and support each other so much, how can they be rivals? The Torah tells you, look at the stories in the Chumash. Over there, there's sibling rivalry. Do you think that you're greater than Joseph and his brothers? Joseph's brothers were also tzaddikim, they're the 12 tribes. If they had sibling rivalry, all the more so today we should understand that sibling rivalry is totally understood. So that's why I want to bring out, I think from the Chumash, in every story you could take out a very practical directive for your life. So over here, we want to talk about what was the key to the spy's mistake. And that brings us to the name of the topic, which is the Almighty Holy Ego. Which is that the spies, if anything, it was their greatness that led them astray. Today, when people say that they're doing something because of holy reasons, all of a sudden it becomes okay to do whatever you want. Oh, I have a holy reason for doing it. It's not for me. I'm doing it for this, you know, I'm doing it for this nonprofit. I'm doing it for this kindness. I'm doing it for this charitable cause that I'm doing. And then whatever I'm doing becomes kosher. I could say whatever I want and it's kosher. And you have that a lot. I say this for myself as a rabbi. That the rabbi can come and he could say whatever he wants. And unless it's clear, it could be like, oh, he's a rabbi. Whatever he says, it could just come out, it's kosher. And it's totally not true. The Torah is telling us is that these spies were the greatest men of the time. They were the 12 leaders. Today, they'd be the greatest tzaddikim. And yet their ego led them to think that they could make their own conclusion against a clear directive from God. That they said, we know that it's better for the people if we stay in the desert. Oh, God wants us to go into Israel. We know what's best. Why? For holy reasons. Like the Rebbe said, it's not a reason of physicality. It's a reason because they thought that in the desert we're more spiritual and more close to God. In Israel, we're going to have to go into business. We're going to have to go into real estate and all these things. In the desert, we just uh, kumbaya. We're like an ashram in India sitting on a mountain. And you know, we're totally, we're ascetics, we're monks. That's what they wanted to be. They believed that the monk lifestyle, that was the way, the most prime and the most amazing thing. So this type of ego, I want to just get into of how it can be so powerful. So in psychology today, there's something called cognitive bias. Cognitive bias today is especially powerful because of social media. What's cognitive bias? Is basically your brain functions to keep your life as efficient as possible. So what does that mean? If you would sit down every day and you would say, I have no opinions. I have no views of the world. I'm leaving myself open for all the opinions of the world to take me today. Your life would just be very slow and you wouldn't have any direction. Nothing would work. So what does your brain do? Your brain says, these are your views on everything. And it gets to you to your views as quick as possible. So that then everything else you see in the world, you put into your way of thinking. 
So that's why, in general, you have such divisiveness in society. Like, how is it possible that two brilliant people who are both very smart, very rational, very logical people, they could sit across from each other and have completely different opinions to the point they could come to war of people killing each other? How is that possible? It's because of this condition called cognitive bias, that a person only sees what they want to see. They put the whole world into the box that they already want it to be in. And this is a real, this is not a conspiracy, this is a fact of human psychology. And today, with social media, if you ever saw, there's a, there's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, I believe, yeah, Social Dilemma, where the way it works, it explains to you that social media basically has algorithms where they know exactly what you like to see. Let's say you're a person when you log onto your Facebook and you like to see people dancing, you like to see people falling and people like, you know, falling off ladders or whatever it is, or you like to see videos of nature. They're just going to show you those videos because they know that's what makes you click. And they'll send other videos to test. Oh, let's see if you like something else. Wow. But it's programmed efficiently to get your brain to look at it. And why? Because of advertising. How does all these social media companies make money? It's from advertising. So the whole idea of advertising is that if I want to advertise a product, I want to hit my target uh, crowd as fast as possible. That's the best way to advertise. So let's say, for example, I'm National Geographic, right? And I want to advertise National Geographic to the world. So I'm going to say to Facebook, I'm going to give you a million dollars to advertise to all the people who love nature videos. Because instead of advertising to every human being on earth that maybe doesn't like nature videos, I know exactly who likes nature videos and I'm gonna target them to come and watch my program. So this is the way our world is designed today. This concept was invented by a guy named Amos Tversky in 1972. Uh, this idea of cognitive bias, where we put the world into the light that we wanna see it. So the lesson that we could learn here is that we should never fall for the holy ego. And the reason why I'm specifically focusing on the holy ego is because the regular human ego is not so dangerous. Why? If you see somebody who's coming, and I'll tell you why, but I mean it's not so dangerous. If you see somebody who's coming and he's a businessman, he's a shark, right? And he wants to make money. So that you get right away, okay? He wants to make money, we want to make money, everyone wants to make money. That's like clear, okay, fine. Now people are more, their guard is more up because they know it's business and that human greed can be a certain way. But when it comes to holiness, then there's like these weird boundaries and these weird lines where people don't know, oh, maybe are they doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? And holiness can be a ploy where it creates a screen that then people think, oh, we could do whatever we want. And this is what happened with the spies. The spies said, we're not doing it because we're, we're, we're egotistical. We're not doing it because we're greedy. We're doing it because we want to serve God. That's why we told the Jewish people not to go into the land. Not because of us. It's not for our own selfish desires. It's because we want to serve God. And guess what? When you look at the story, the reason why the lesson is so powerful is because the punishment does not change one bit because of the intentions. Oh, their intention was for good reason. And God said, oh, the intention was for good reason? Oh, I didn't realize what you were intending to do. You should have just told me that was your holy intention. Not at all. God says the punishment will be severe because if you speak slandering about my land, about Israel, my land of Israel... The punishment is going to be severe no matter what your intention was. So I think this idea is very important and very powerful. That we go into the world, and the reason why I don't want to focus so much on the negative, is that we just focus on what we do. And actually last night I had a class with a few guys, and there's these two concepts in Judaism which seem to be contradictory. And we can discuss it now because I feel like really it brings out this idea very well. There's something called Hamaisa Hua Iker, which means the action is the main thing. Whatever you do, that's all that matters. I can sit here and I can talk and talk and there's people who are great talkers and very charismatic politicians and like Itti gave a shir on Shavuos about the famous apple white cult that he was able to go to California and convince people that Nike shoes are the shoes of angels and everyone should kill themselves to get closer to God and they all follow him. 
So words could be very powerful. The question is, what does a person do? And this idea, for example, I'll tell you where the big debate comes out with this, is when it comes to giving charity. Let's say somebody wants to give a large donation, right? Should the donation come in a way that's secretive, that nobody knows, which the Rambam says is the greatest way? Do it as a secret, do it quietly. Or should the donation come in a way which has publicity? Why should the donation come in a way that has publicity? You're going to say, maybe it will just pump up his ego. But no, the Rebbe had an opinion that when a person gives a donation publicly, that will encourage others to give a big donation as well. And then practically speaking, we don't know what's going on in everyone's mind. The ego, you know, they're doing it because they want the, the recognition, but we know that it's going to convince other people to give another donation. So I think over here, the point of the spies is that their intention was good, but the result and the action that they did was not. And God was not merciful because their intention was good. So the lesson to take out of it is that it's extremely important that we internalize and we realize that our actions are everything. What we do is all that matters for ourselves and as well as when we're looking at others, which I think it's very important in general, judge another person favorably. And therefore, I'm not saying that we should be harsh with people and we should judge them in a negative light. Really, mainly this is introspectively, that for ourselves, we should always make sure that we're doing the right thing. And it doesn't matter if it's going to pump up our ego. I remember we discussed this a lot at the beginning of our marriage when it came to you know, doing holy things. If you want to make a big shul, if you want to make a big school, if you want to do a big thing like that. And the question is, should I be nervous because my holy ego is getting big? Oh, I'm excited if I have a big speech and people come over and they say, wow, you spoke so well. Or if I'm excited if we do a big event and it's so successful and we get a lot. And then we go, oh, it feels so good. But the question is, if it's a good thing, then it's a good thing. That's it. A good thing is a good thing. It's that simple. What we do is all that counts. Isn't it all to do with intention? That? Not, not only action, it's intention. Yes, that's the balance. That's the question. That's where it gets confusing. But today I'll tell you, it seems like, and I don't want to say this is a flat line rule because it's a really, the real answer is that life is always towing the line. You can never go to extremes. The Rambam always speaks about this. The Rambam says a person needs to know the middle path is always the right path. If anybody ever tells you to go to an extreme, they're probably telling you not the right thing. So over here, we have two extremes. On the one side is that just do whatever is good and it doesn't matter what the intention is. And the other hand is, is that the intention is very important. So I think the middle path is, if I personally would be saying how I live my life, is that I lean towards doing the right thing is what matters. And the intention will follow when you're doing the right thing. Because if you're always doing the right thing and you're focusing on the action, there's going to be situations where your ego is going to have to be swallowed to do the right thing. Yeah? Okay. So, you, um, your intention every day should be to be like Hashem, isn't it? That's your intention. Yeah. That's your purpose of your whole day. Yeah. So if your purpose and your intention starts off like that, your actions are going to follow. It's not your actions and then your intention. It has to be your intention, intention. Yeah. to be like Hashem and to follow Him and to like, be available to Him that actually lead your actions. Yes. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think very well said. That's why it's that's why it's so important because your intention and action there you can't exactly you can't have action without any intention. And then so it's complicated. It is very complicated. But I but think I that that's like really you can get confused. Like for me at least, sometimes I think, "Oh, I might be doing this for the wrong reasons." But what's the result of that? I'll be like, "Okay, so I'm not going to do it." So I might think that my intentions are trying to be like Hashem and holy and all that but then I end up not doing the good thing. And 
I think that's like the point is that stop focusing so much for me at least like stop focusing so much on myself of what my reason is and like at the end of the day am I going to be helping people am I going to give that charity am I going to do that class are people going to be impacted positively first do that and then I can work on my ego or whatever I'm worried about behind the scenes but don't you know what I mean? Like, don't don't hold yourself back from giving to other people, helping other people, making a positive impact because you're so worried about, you know, that you're gonna be not in the image of God. Or you're not perfect because you're yeah, never gonna be. So I think yeah, that's he's the. He's always wanting to help. He's always wanting to improve things. He's always wanting to to actually make a difference in people's lives. So how could that well, if you be wake negative up, in any way? If you if you feel like you're gonna do something good, but you're gonna feel like it's maybe for selfish reasons, then maybe you can convince yourself not to do it. I know sometimes I'll be like, okay, so then I shouldn't do it because it's just for me. But like you were saying, God, if he does good things, it's not for selfish reasons. But I'm not God, you know? So I, I might be doing it sometimes for selfish reasons. And if I push past that and do it anyway, then it can eventually become not for selfish reasons. You know, you see the people that are being impacted. Sometimes it might be not for selfish reasons. Sometimes it will be. Meaning, like, it really just, like, we're humans. So I I feel like, I don't know, for me, that's what I try to do. Yes. Okay, so this is a long discussion, so we'll continue. I want to get it back to the class because it's just so we're not here for a long time because this is a very long discussion. And I think that just to give one scenario that I feel like brings out the situation exactly what she's saying very well, but also what you're saying of the intention is, let's say, for example, in shuls when they auction off Elias, right? So there could be a situation where a guy is sitting there and they're auctioning off the Elias and he's saying to himself, I could bid very high and I want to bid very high. I'm a very generous man. I have the capability. Thank God I'm blessed. I want to bid very high. But if I'm going to bid very high, I'm going to look very egotistical. So he's going to hold back from bidding his donation. It could be now that the, the Aliyah could be sold off for $50,000 and instead it's going to go for twenty five because everyone's so nervous about showing off their ego that then what ends up happening is now there's less money for the shul to be able to do the functions that they need that are necessary. I disagree because yeah. at the end of the day, if somebody has the, the intent to improve and help, they might not do it only because of an idea. They might do it in another way. They might go to the rabbi or the committee afterwards and say, I know that this is what you tried to do. And yeah. here's the money. It doesn't have to be a public thing. It doesn't. It, yes. it, it stems from the same place. Yes. So it doesn't have to, the shul doesn't have to lose out just because of that bidding more. Yeah. Okay. No, I hear you. I hear you. And I, yeah, I hear you. Okay. <laughs> we have debate continuously. <laughs> yes. It's really, it's a debate. It's one of those things in life, which I think it's beautiful that it's, it's a debate. It's something which can be, it's two different styles almost. It's not like one is right or wrong. No, no okay. So I want to share with you guys a story to end off. Okay. Two very short stories. One short and one a little bit longer. I want to tell you about what I say about this mute action. There was a very great man who passed away recently. His name was Reb Chaim Kanievsky Zetzal. Right? He was called the Sar HaTorah. The minister, the prince of Torah. a week and a half ago. Or oh, so that was Rav Edelstein. Uh, Rav Edelstein was another. It's very sad. They both two, like the one who basically was taking over for Rav Chaim was Rav Edelstein. He also just passed away. Within a few months of each other, if I'm not mistaken. He was 100 years old. The one last, yes, last, the one who passed away. Yeah. Oh. Yes, no, because <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's, it's a... 
in the framework of being the Gadol Hadar, which means this is something which it never goes, from what I know, I'm not so familiar with it because in the Chabad system, it's not something which is very prevalent, the Gadol. We more go by a Rebbe system, but the Gadol is somebody who is extremely accomplished. Like you almost have to be 100 to reach that level. Reb Chaim Kanievsky, they called him the Sarah Torah. You know why they call him the Sarah Torah? He literally made a seum. He completed the entire Torah every year. It's something which, meaning, if you really internalize, we're not talking about the Chumash or whatever, we're talking about the commentaries, we're talking about both Talmuds, the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud, the Midrashim, the Zohar, the Shulchan Aruch, Maimonides. We're talking about something which is, it's nearly an impossible human feat. He had a nature which was unbelievable. He would wake up at 2 a.m., learn for 20 hours, and do the same thing every single day. He was a relentless learner of Torah beyond. And this is not even something which we're, we're talking about like hearsay. It's something that was witnessed by hundreds of thousands of people every day. He was, he was on a completely different level. A, a once in a lifetime. When he, in 1954, his mentor, his teacher and mentor, the Chazon Ish, passed away. And when he passed away, he was obviously extremely broken. He really was, the Chazon Ish was his uncle, but he really was his guiding light of who he became. His inspiration to learn Torah, inspiration to be a Tamil Chacham. So when he passed away, he describes... How that day, like I said, he had a schedule. Every day he would learn an incredible amount. Every single day, the same schedule. So he said that day that the Chazonish passed away, he felt a Yetzir Hara. He felt a desire to stop learning. That day to say, listen, today is a hard day. I'm not going to learn today. And he said he felt if he didn't learn that day, if he didn't sit down and just do it, didn't matter how he was feeling or how if his mind was there, if he was emotionally present or not, he said I'm not, he felt he would lose his entire schedule just by missing that one day. That's what made him unique. He was so focused on the action of doing the learning every day, he never missed it. By him, it was something, it's not a question of how I feel. It's not a question of what's going on in my life. There's even stories of how he would have Shabbat meals. This is obviously not a directive for everyone. He was very unique. But people might hear this and you know, have different opinions on it. So I'm just being clear. He was very unique in this and his wife was okay with this. He would sit, when they would sit down for Shabbat, he wouldn't stop learning. He would have a shtender next to him, a little stand next to him always, a safer open, and he would be learning. And then his wife would say Kiddush, he would turn and make Kiddush, and he would go back to the book, then he would go and watch back the book, he never stopped. He was continuous. So it just tells you an idea, an idea. I can't even imagine. Yeah, no, just an idea of, of just the action, the importance of it. This is really how he lived, like a, just a physical reality. Now a little bit a different type of story. There was a man who survived, and we're going to end off with this. There was a, a man who survived the Holocaust. And like many after the Holocaust, he was very disenchanted from Judaism. How could God make the Holocaust happen? He was very disenchanted from Judaism. He married a similarly disenchanted woman and they moved to Crown Heights, to Brooklyn. And he has one son after the war. And he says to himself, I'm going to raise this son to be a mensch, but to have nothing to do with Judaism, with God, with religion, zero. He moved to the wrong place. Yes, he moved to the wrong place. Now we know. He raised a young boy and this boy also grew up just like his father wanted, his father and mother wanted, that he had zero connection to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism, not just that, with a strong anti-religious personality. He ends up having, Baruch Hashem gets married and has many children. He gets married to a Jewish woman as well. He has many children. And lo and behold, one day, one of his sons in Crown Heights gets pulled in by the Chabad Lubavitch movement and he ends up becoming a Baal Teshuvah. And he ends up being completely Choser B'Tshuvah and becomes observant, orthodox, whatever you want to call it. His father is cannot believe it. This was like, 
Everything he's done his whole life to raise his son, gone. Down the toilet. It's like one of his biggest accomplishments would be my son not to be religious. He's very religious. So sure enough, this boy meets a woman and they're about to get married. And he says to his father, I want you to come to the wedding. His father says to him, my son. And they had a great relationship, just to be clear. He says, my son, I love you. I love you to bits. I cannot swallow. I cannot stand and watch my son get married in an Orthodox Jewish wedding. I cannot see that. I can't. I can't come to your wedding. He says, I'll celebrate with you after. I'll celebrate with you before. I cannot see that. It just will break my heart. So the son says, fine. Fine. But the father says, I'll do anything else that you want. If you ask me for anything else, I'll do it. Son says, anything? He says, anything. Son says, fine. I'll come back to you with something. Son comes back to me. He says, I want you to get a circumcision. <laughs> the father was never circumcised. He says, I want you to get a circumcision. <laughs> the father says, fine. I said, I'll do anything. I'll do it. He gets a circumcision which of course is one of the most, like an essential, like the famous David HaMelech, when he was naked going to, to the mikvah, he was saying, oh, I have no mitzvot now. I'm naked of mitzvot, but he had a circumcision. I mean, the circumcision is one of the most essential mitzvahs that we have. It's the most basic, right? His father gets it, and his father all of a sudden afterwards, he feels like a change of heart. He starts feeling his mind a little bit differently. And he says, you know what? I'm going to come to the wedding, but I'm not dancing. I'm not dancing. I'm not celebrating at this wedding. I'll be there, but I'm going to be there begrudgingly. Just know, I'm, I'm coming, but that's it. He comes to the wedding. He's so inspired how beautiful the wedding was. He's so inspired. He starts dancing like a Meshuggah. He's having the best time. By the wedding, he's dancing and dancing and dancing. Unbelievable. The father is the biggest dancer. He's having the best time of his life. The caterer sees this guy dancing. He comes over to him and he says, I'm so inspired. This is in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. He says, I'm so inspired by the way you were dancing tonight and the way you were so joyous for your son. I want to give you a personal gift. Caterer takes out of, his, out of his pocket a dollar, one dollar bill. He says, this dollar was given by the Lubavitch Rebbe to me when he gave out the Sunday dollars, and I want to give it to you. He gives the dollar to the man, and the man faints. On the spot, he faints. They wake him up for a second, and he says, that's my dollar, that's my dollar, and he faints again. Finally, they revive him, and he says, you're not going to believe this. He says, when I was a kid, me and a few other public school kids heard about this rabbi who gives out dollars in Brooklyn. And we said, we'll make a joke, you know, we'll go, we'll get a dollar, it's free money. Back then a dollar, I don't know, today with inflation, a dollar is five dollars or something, I don't know what. We'll get some free money. So they go and they wait in line and they get the dollar and everything. When they, and I got the dollar from the Rebbe, the Rebbe gave me a dollar. And the story, I will tell you by this part, this story, I'm a little bit skeptical because of this part of the story. It's an interesting story, but this is a story written down by Rabbi David Hoffman in a book called Torah Tavlin, Volume 3. This part of the story is a little bit unique to me because you might wonder about how the story ends. It's a unique part that I'm not sure. It's weird. The Rebbe gives him the dollar, and as the boy's walking away, the Rebbe asked him, do you have a brit milah? Do you have a circumcision? And the boy says, no. So the Rebbe says, okay, you give me the dollar back, and one day when you get a circumcision, I'll give the dollar back to you. And the boy said, fine. And the boy walked away without getting the dollar. This boy was the man dancing by the wedding. After he got his circumcision, he received the dollar from the Rebbe. So we see also a beautiful lesson from that story is that the action can also, this is a story where the action leads to the intention. Where having the circumcision actually changed the way that he thought, changed his mindset, changed his mentality, which ended up having his intentions to be better. So this is an action leading to intention story. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> <laughs>